0: I'm Dr. Leif Tapanola from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces. The natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Today, our guest is Dr. Jen Pierce. She's a professor of geoscience at Boise State University. Today, we're talking about climate change, Peter. Do you find that's a hard topic to talk about sometimes?
1: Honestly, no, because as we go through our daily lives, all you have to do is look at the news or read the nose, can see how the changing climate is affecting us every single day. I was going to say, you can read the nose. I can totally read can the tell. nose. No, like you said, Mine, read the nose. Mine's big enough to <laughs> was, see. No, so. I, was, I was thinking, you know, uh,
0: uh, the wildfires are oh, picking we can up smell and them. you can yeah. smell it. Oh, we can smell it. yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was, I was trying to riff off of that. Okay. No check. I totally ruined so you're on the me. nose on your face. <laughs> right,
2: right.
1: <laughs> Peter, let's get to some nature news, shall we? Absolutely, leaf, um, Deccan traps or the Chicxulub asteroid? That's the question. That is a good question. That is a great question, and why it's a great question is because we we want to talk about the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction event <gasps> and what actually caused it. Who killed the dinosaurs? Who killed the dinosaurs? Right, and gave rise to the mammals. You know, dun, dun, dun. Du, 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 we should make a movie about that. That would be a good movie. Yeah, researchers from Dartmouth used 130 processors to analyze the fossil records of the CPG event to reverse pinpoint the events and conditions that led to the extinction. And by using the computers, they were hoping to take away some of the biasness of predetermined hypotheses. You know, there's always is it the Deccan traps? Is it the asteroid? And sometimes we want to skew our data into uh, our we've been chosen—
0: fight, We've been fighting over that since forever. 1981. Yes, so. yes, yeah. yes. So
1: <laughs> and I think you'll probably still be discussing that afterwards. But what they found is the model suggested that the release of climate-altering gases, carbon dioxide, and sulfur from the Deccan traps alone would have been sufficient to trigger the global extinction. So— hmm it comes with the caveat you know the traps had at that point been erupting for approximately 300,000 years and there was another 700,000 years before the eruptions kind of settled down so did the Chicxulub asteroid kind of speed the process up or help it certainly didn't hinder the extinction event um but now that's the question: What's right. the role w- with these two two events? You know, and this has been really kind of interesting during um, the nearly one hundred million years of eruption, the Deccan Traps released ten point four trillion tons of CO two and nine point three trillion tons of sul- sulfur. And to kind of put this in context, um, in the last 23 years, 2000 to 2023, we have released via man-made CO2 about 16 billion tons. And I kind of did some math, and hopefully, I'm relatively correct. It's kind of a big number anyway. So, in those basically 24 years, because you got 2000 up to 2023, sure. we've been releasing about 666 million tons of CO2 into the atmosphere annually. And over the million years, the Deccan traps released about 10, 10.5 million tons of CO2 annually. So that's quite a difference. That's a huge difference, yeah. Uh, if decan, my numbers not, are right. Yeah. Not yeah. nearly as much, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Interesting. I think there is a growing consensus, I think, in the paleontology world that the Chicxulub impact was was the straw that broke the brontosaur's back, but uh, the decan traps and the gas released from those volcanoes surely would have had some climate mm-hmm. impact that might have destabilized things.
1: Yeah, and the other thing, too, um, as we— I'll have these conversations about climate change. The one thing I really do want to point out is that the Deccan, Deccan Traps—that was a, a million years of happenings and a that process, long. yeah, right—and yeah, we're yeah. sitting at basically 150 years. So when we look at the scale and the speed of uh, the CO2 emissions, um, there's a difference there. So. I think that's a very important component of our discussions.
0: Well, that is a really relevant nature news that you brought up, Uh, Peter. Today's topic is about climate change. In our trivia question, who was the first scientist to recognize that greenhouse gases would warm the climate? Well, When we come back from the break, Dr. Jen Pierce from Boise State University will join us to talk about climate change and help answer that question. So stay tuned.
1: Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here at NPR, we try to reach all kinds of listeners. My name is Leo and I'm eight years old.
2: And we take feedback very seriously.
1: I never hear much about nature or dinosaurs or things like that.
2: So when Leo wrote us about our appalling lack of dinosaur coverage on all things considered, we knew we had to talk to him. Hi, Leo. Hi. I hear from your parents that you want to be a paleontologist when you grow up and now we've got one on the line for you. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> let me let you ask a question.
1: How did dinosaurs grow to be so big? This is hard-hitting
0: journalism because these are the types of questions that keep paleontologists up at night.
2: In public radio, we value our relationship with each and every one of our listeners. You listen to us, and we listen to you too. So keep our connection strong. Donate to this station right now. Here's how.
0: You know who covers dinosaurs really well. The Nature of Idaho on KISU. Support NPR and KISU programs by visiting kisu org and click donate i want to welcome dr jen pierce to the show we're talking about climate change today uh, so first off thanks for joining us today on the nature of idaho
2: it is wonderful to be here leaf and peter thank you so much for having me
0: well jen uh We know that you're a professor over at Boise State University. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what your research interests are?
2: Well, um, let's see. I've been at Boise State for quite a while now, since 2005, and I actually did my Ph.D. research on the South Fork of the Payette River in Idaho, which is the first thing that brought me to Idaho. Um, So way back then, I guess starting in 23 years ago, um, I was traveling up and down the South Fork Payette and I was looking for little pieces of paleo charcoal, and I was using those pieces of charcoal to reconstruct a longer term history of wildfire in the South Fork Payette. So that is what kind of brought me to these beautiful lands and rivers of Idaho and I did my best to not have to leave again and I've succeeded. So um I always joke with people that the key finding of my PhD research was to conclude are you guys ready for this <laughs> that fires are bigger and more severe when it is warm and dry. Oh. Mm. I know. Isn't that shocking? So I spent <laughs> four years proving that um that even over short time scales, long time scales, 100-year time scales, 1000-year time scales that fires are bigger and more severe when it's warm and dry when we are in our forests. And that big fires cause more erosion. That was the other thing I found.
1: So. Excellent. And the great part is you have the data to back that up now.
2: I really do. We I just really have do. to have
1: people who can read that data and appreciate it.
2: Well, exactly. Yes.
0: Well, I, I think anyone who lives here in, in Idaho uh, recognizes, you know, the, the seasons of our year usually conclude before winter with a fire season. And uh the severity of those uh, has has maybe increased over the last few decades. What can we say about that at this point?
2: Well, there's I, I would say there was a real turning point in about 1985. So starting in about 1985, we really saw a exponential increase in the size and severity of our fires. Um, and there's of course been lots and lots of great research on this since then. What we're really seeing, and and folks living in Idaho can relate to this, is that in cooler and wetter times, so before about 1985, those our high elevation forests were just too wet to burn. So you can imagine if you tried to go out and start a a campfire and it's really cool and wet, you're going to have a really hard time starting that fire. And so that was the condition for much of our high elevation lodgepole pine type of forests. However, with modern climate change, those forests are getting warmer and drier, and of course this last summer, um, with the horrific fires that burned throughout Canada, we are seeing this on a very uh, large and indeed global scale, Um, so that's really been the shift in our, our fires and our forests. Now, when we talk about our rangeland ecosystems, our sagebrush steppe ecosystems, that's a little bit of a different story. And that ecosystem has been much more affected by invasive grasses, particularly cheatgrass, which has provided more fuel for what used to be fuel-limited systems. So, yeah, so it was really, it was that study of fire that first brought me to Idaho. Since then, I have, I started teaching, well, I actually taught one of the first climate change classes at Boise State We've developed a great climate studies minor. I have gotten really quite involved in climate education. And in the last, I'd say, seven, eight years, i um, been really interested in soils as a solution to climate change. So I have quite a bit of research on that right now as well. So, yeah, that's Jen in a nutshell.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to, this nearly 40 years ago, uh, when... I believe I was in high school. I can remember when we had that massive Yellowstone fire, and Mm -hmm. there was also a fire in the Black Hills. I grew up in Iowa. And at the time, I don't think any of us were really concerned about climate change. It was all about the hole in the ozone layer. And Mm -hmm. it it kind of shows you, when we're looking at global changes, kind of how slow— we, we see the responses, but we can now look back and go, yeah, here's kind of that turning point. And we had the amazing, beautiful sunsets from the Yellowstone fires all the way over right. in Iowa.
2: That's right. Yeah, 1988. Actually, I remember I was out in the Yellowstone region. My dad uh, was a geologist who worked in Yellowstone. And our cabin, which is just right out the northeast entrance of Yellowstone, Almost burned down in that fire. So I certainly remember the Yellowstone fires of 1988. And yes, there were lovely sunsets, but it really was a pretty shocking realization. You know, first of all, that fires could could burn that uh, large and that severely. Second, that you know Yellowstone, of course, is an ecosystem where, of all places, we have really not interfered with the fire regime. Um, So we can't attribute those Yellowstone fires and we can't attribute the recent fires that have burned, for example, in the Frank Church wilderness, really to human influence. Those are not areas where we have actively suppressed fires or changed the natural fire regime. So what we're seeing in Yellowstone, what we're seeing in the Frank Church is is that climate driven signal of large fires, um, not attributable to prior fire suppression. And so for for me, that's really an important point to bring home here, that um, these fires are indeed a response to climate change.
0: Now, one of the challenges, and we can talk about many of them, uh, of recognizing or understanding climate change is timescale and thinking about the difference between something like weather versus climate. Could you speak to that a little?
2: That's a great question and I think actually that your prior example of climate in the news and the Deccan traps is a great example here and one I always tell my students that our secret power as geoscientists is that we do actually understand and appreciate time. And so your question of you know what's weather what's climate and, you know, tying more broadly into this great question of what drives climate change on global scales and on longer time scales is a question that geoscientists, I think, are uniquely suited to answer. because that is what we have been doing. We've been looking at these climate drivers over these long time scales. We've been finding examples in the geologic past, um, like the Deccan Traps of the influence of carbon dioxide. On the Earth's climate. Um, so, a, a question I often get from the public, which I think is a great question, is well, gosh, you know, how do we know that the recent warming temperatures, et cetera, aren't just part of a natural cycle? And what we can conclusively answer, of course, as geoscientists, is well, we know that by looking, at Milankovitch cycle climate changes. We know that by looking at the records of changes in carbon dioxide preserved in ice cores and in even longer term sediment records. Um, so I think that that's something that, that the geoscience community um, can do a good job of communicating to the public to answer that legitimate question. So getting back to the weather versus climate, you know, uh, there's the cliche that, um, you know, Climate is what you expect and weather is what you get, you know, (laughs) and there's more, you know, uh, scientific definitions that you could say that climate is an average of weather over the last 60 years, et cetera. But um, certainly from all the records we've been looking at, we can. And what I say for kids is really climate is our longer term weather. We can just simplify it that way.
1: I kind of correct me if I'm wrong. I kind of use this analogy. Weather is the school bus driver, or I should say the climate is the school bus driver and the weather's all the rowdy kids in the back seat. So, <laughs> yeah, like the, the climate's kind of driving you and the kids in the back throwing spitballs is weather.
2: <laughs> I like that. Cause it actually also gets at the, I like the school bus part because climate is a, a slow moving system and, um, a really remarkable climate scientist, Richard Alley, once made the analogy that that climate is like kind of the the real big guy who's you know sitting on a stool, maybe having a beverage, and and he's not going to want to get up and move unless you really poke him a lot. But <laughs> but we've been poking, we've been poking <laughs> at our climate so, assessments. <laughs> we've been throwing spitballs at the bus driver. To continue your analogy,
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> so you've been focusing in on. Climate change education, specifically, and in and, and the communication of climate science, you have a program that's abbreviated I Clear. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so I Clear is um, the Idaho Climate Literacy education, education Engagement and Research Group, and so I got together folks to informed I Clear in about uh, 2019 2020. And uh, the mission of iClear is to empower Idahoans and their communities to take action to address the causes, consequences, and solutions to the earth's changing climate. Um, So what we do, this is a pretty fun and informal group. Uh, We develop and promote existing strengths in climate change education, research, and engagement. Um, And we uh, extend throughout the state of Idaho. Of course, we have the most folks in the, the Boise area. But it's just a really neat group of people, really, and and with the goal of amplifying the amazing efforts that are already going on out there, to connect educators with researchers if they're interested in teaching about or learning about a specific topic, to amplify the efforts of our amazing youth climate groups. There is a city of Boise hosts a youth climate summit, for example, every spring, and they get great speakers. The Boise school system hosts a sustainability summit and teacher professional development in the summer. Boise State is working on our part of our sustainability program for our campus. And so all sorts of different avenues there.
1: As you go and do these outreaches, can you speak on or have you noticed kind of a difference in, in a sense, the age groups that you work with and communicate? You know, are there some that are way more um, accepting of climate change and we need to do something now? Or are there others that are just like, you know, it happened before?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly the younger generations are acutely aware of climate change and and concerned about it. They're worried about it. And that's something I really want to, to keep in mind in our climate communications. And this is uh, something that Catherine Hayhoe, who's a really fantastic climate communicator, has identified in her talks. And the point that I'm making is that if you let, you know, if you are already worried about climate change, It doesn't do any good for me to come in and tell you why you should be worried and all the reasons you should be even maybe more worried. So all that that does really is kind of discourage and disincentivize people. And so I think for all of us being aware of that, that first of all, 76 percent of Idahoans want our kids taught about the causes, consequences and solutions to climate change over 80 percent of idahoans and this is throughout the state over 80 percent of idahoans would like to see tax rebates for clean energy and so despite what we may think there's actually widespread support within our state to address climate change so if the best thing we can do to find out about these different demographics as you brought up of climate change is actually to talk about it. So number one thing uh, we can do to to learn more about climate change in our own communities here in Idaho is to talk about it. And what I found through those conversations is that even when I'm speaking with someone who, let's say, is a fourth-generation Idaho farmer, who maybe I would have thought wouldn't care as much about climate change That is not true. Our producers on our lands are at the forefront of experiencing the effects of climate change. So our farmers, our ranchers, our agricultural community, I think, has both wonderful insights into what's actually happening on the land and has ideas of what sort of solutions they would like to see. So that's an example of of a community here in our state that I think the research community should really we are already doing this but even make more efforts to connect with and find climate solutions on our agricultural lands. So See, I,
1: I love that as opposed to discussing what's causing the climate change let's discuss what we can do to find solutions or work towards less emissions.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So that um, it, it turns out that guilt is a is a tricky thing that of course Number one, we have got to reduce carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So we have absolutely got to reduce the root cause of climate change. And um, let's all work together to find those solutions that both reduce CO2 in the atmosphere. And this could be, for example, by storing more carbon in our soils, which again could be win-win for our producers. And let's talk about adaptation to our climate change, you know, to climate change on our landscapes. So really working in a positive direction. And what I found when I do K through 12 outreach is that, first of all, kids are not, you know, people have said, oh, you can't go talk to elementary school kids about this. It'll scare them. I'm like, no, not really. We play greenhouse gas tag. So they get to run around, play tag, And then they learn how the greenhouse effect works. And by the way, the way the greenhouse effect works is that greenhouse gases trap heat. It's pretty, pretty simple. So greenhouse gases trap heat. So they learn that, which is actually something that the majority of adults don't know. So they learn that and then they talk about sketch and team build on their solutions. So I've gotten um, solutions, everything from solar powered skateboards. I've gotten a lightning bolt capture system I have had the most ingenious, creative solutions from these kids, and they're excited about it. So um, I think what we can do as the generation with the money, power, and voting rights is to help empower them to um, achieve those solutions.
0: Let me let me dig into another aspect of, uh, I think it comes back to the scale of the challenge, I suppose, that, that we face globally. We think of taking action as, you know, act local, think global sort of approach. But with, a, with an issue that is truly global, the atmosphere doesn't stop at the Idaho border. I think there's an, an, an easiness of saying, well, I'm just one person. I'm in one part of the world. How can I possibly have a meaningful, substantial impact? How do we address those kinds of concerns?
2: That's a great question, Leaf, and it's it's true. I mean, that, that of all things, our atmosphere is mixed. So, what the carbon dioxide we emit in Idaho does not stay in Idaho, right. right? And so, what I would say is that we need to get beyond first of all our own personal guilt and and say, okay, well, if I can't go electric and live in a tree house, and eat only nuts and berries, then I can't do anything. So that's not helpful to anybody, right? So we need to get beyond our personal guilt. And I would say the best thing you can do is what lies at the intersection. And if you want to think of a Venn diagram with three circles. So at the intersection of three circles. So the first circle is what are you good at? What are your skills, talents, and connections? So That's the first one. So think about what are you good at? What needs doing in terms of climate solutions? So what do you want to focus on that we really need to work on? So what's what needs doing? And then the third one, if you can get all three of these, is what brings you joy? So if you can think about something that, that you're really good at, that you have the connections to do, something that needs doing, and something that brings you joy, then you are at that intersection. So I would argue that by putting on, for you two, putting on this fantastic radio show is something that you're good at, um, it needs doing, hopefully it brings you joy. And through this, you are already at that intersection of climate action.
0: And through that approach, everyone's different, right? Everyone will be uh, talented in certain areas and have interests in certain areas. And there's plenty of needs to go around. And so with the combination yeah. of, of people thinking of in those ways, right? We can diversify our our solutions.
2: So to bring it to someone who I know uh, you will appreciate, if you are Neil Young um, and you (laughs) already are an amazingly talented, well-known singer and songwriter, then for Neil Young to sing poignant, really action-oriented songs about climate change, as he has been doing, is exactly his niche, so we don't need we don't need Neil Young to be going out and, and measuring CO two concentrations, right? That would be a waste of everyone's time. We need him to write great songs about climate change and sing them.
0: <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. And it again, it it customizes solutions to individuals. And it should be something that is enjoyable and things that people want to do and, and find benefit from. The solutions to climate change shouldn't be cast in a negative light as things that we have to give up but rather do in a proactive and deliberate way.
2: Exactly. So if we think about a climate adapted future where our air is clean because we have a lot less pollution from coal, if we think about our climate future as a place where we are supporting our local farmers and ranchers, if we think about a climate future where we are producing our own energy and maybe not living these really complicated lives. That sounds pretty good to me.
0: (laughs) Indeed. I have a question for you. How can people get involved and connect with iClear and other climate-oriented education programs?
2: Um, Well, I'd encourage folks, if they are interested in iClear, you can go to the webpage. So again, it's through Boise State, but if you just Google I-C-L-E-E-R Boise State, it should come up. And send me an email. My email is Jen Pierce, J-E-N-P-I-E-R-C-E at Boise State.edu. Caveat, I am on sabbatical right now. So if I don't respond <laughs> right away, um, I will try to get back to you. So that's that's one way to get involved. But I would say there's a lot of other great organizations. And also just to double down on the on the organizations folks are already involved with. So if you are already actively involved with 4-H or Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts or, you know, your local museum or your local lecture series, then think about how you might get climate change into those organizations as well. So,
0: Excellent. Well, I've got one more question for you, and that is our trivia question. Can you help us Ah. with it? Um, So who was the first scientist to recognize that greenhouse gases would warm the climate?
2: That is such a good question. Uh, The first scientist to recognize greenhouse gases would warm the Earth's climates was Eunice Newton Foote, F-O-O-T-E. And she lived between 1819 and 1888. She was an American scientist, inventor, and women's rights advocate. Um, and her paper, which was entitled Circumstances Affecting the Heat of the Sun's Rays, was the first to document the warming effect of greenhouse gases. And she actually did this in her kitchen with an air pump, uh, glass cylinders, which were actually mason jars, and thermometers. And she put different, she would either suck air into two cylinders or pour, put air in, and actually measured that those cylinders with Carbon dioxide and water vapor um, warmed more than the cylinders without those greenhouse gases.
1: That I mean, that's awesome. That is so that cool. That is great. You know, <laughs> we can all mm-hmm. we should all be scientists and and strive to learn and experiment. Right. Right on. That is great. Well, we really want to thank you, Jen, for joining us. And to just we'll make it simple this time. Jen gave you a bunch of directions to go to learn more about what we're doing here in idaho and at boise state just google iclear i-c-l-e-e-r and it'll get you right to her webpage.
2: thank you both so much and i really enjoy your show and all the wonderful topics you present um, so thanks so much for having me
1: thank you joining. jen
0: Nature of Idaho receives support from listener contributions to KISU-FM. Shows are produced at Idaho State University with editing and production by Kalise Kendall and Jamin Anderson. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send your thoughts and suggestions to NOIDKISU at ISU.edu.